Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of After the Final Whistle here at 5 o'clock on Saturday, April 6th. I am your host, Brad Clear, back at it once again here on WrestleMania Weekend. Um, And this show today, it is going to revolve around two things. Uh, We are going to talk mostly about the upcoming NFL Draft, which is in less than three weeks. I think it's really interesting to talk about the quarterback dilemma at number one, and then really as a whole to have a greater discussion on the sort of philosophy of acquiring the franchise quarterback. And then at the end, as will be tradition until the NBA season ends later this week, I will give my updated NBA award rankings, all-NBA teams, and then I'll throw in the two all-rookie teams also. Just as the season goes along, um, I think it's nice to kind of update it by week just to see and show how things are going. And because lots of the races are really tight, well, lots of the races, the MVP race, very tight, lots of flipping and flopping. Again, I am Brad Clear, your host of After the Final Whistle. Let's get right into it and let's talk about the NFL Draft. So we sit here today, Saturday, April 6th. The NFL Draft coming to us on Thursday, April 25th. And Kyler Murray is going to be the first pick of the NFL Draft by the Arizona Cardinals. It's a foregone conclusion. And if you're a past listener, if you follow me on Twitter at BradClear underscore, clear spelled K-L-I-E-R, I am a huge proponent of Josh Rosen. Um, now, regardless of your view of Kyler Murray or your view of Josh Rosen, the sort of way to look at, is this the right move for the Cardinals to make, comes down really to the difference in talent being so great that it supersedes the ability to have the less desirable quarterback and the haul that would result from trading down from number one. Now, of course, if it were me, I think the world of Josh Rosen, and I think it would be a no-brainer to keep Josh Rosen and to trade down from number one to a quarterback-needy team or a team that loves Kyler Murray, maybe Oakland, maybe someone else, and get a huge haul that would allow the Arizona Cardinals to plug the many holes on their roster, most notably their offensive line. I look at Josh Rosen, the 10th overall pick from last year. This is a team who traded up to 10 to get him, traded a third and a fifth, I believe, to get up in addition to swapping firsts. So to bail on that quarterback trade-up after one year, when in that one year, Josh Rosen was running for his life, getting hit on every play behind the worst offensive line in the league, to me is very faulty. However, if you're going to hire Cliff Kingsbury to be your head coach, and Cliff Kingsbury loves Kyler Murray, and he believes that Kyler Murray 
would thrive under his offense. If you want to let the guy who you hired to be your coach succeed or to give him the tools to succeed under his system, and Kyler Murray is the guy that Cliff Kingsbury thinks can do that, you know, there's a very plausible argument there. The way I look at it is Kyler Murray, to me, is the only quarterback in this draft class who has the potential to be a top 15 quarterback in the NFL. Now, I I don't know if I fully agree with that. I think he's, I'm very close to believing that. I think there's significant upside for sure. You'd be blind to not see that there is significant upside there. But maybe he has the potential or the chance to be a top 15 quarterback. The upside is obviously top eight, top five quarterback. The chance to be a top 15 quarterback, the realistic ability to be a top 15 quarterback, maybe. So he is the best quarterback in this draft class. And there is significant upside. I don't put stock into the height um, dilemma that people have used a lot in evaluating Kyler Murray. Again, very mobile with his legs, creates plays, great arm. With that being said, I would take Baker Mayfield, Sam Darnold, or Josh Rose in the top three quarterbacks in last year's draft class. I would take all of them over Kyler Murray. I would take Kyler Murray over Lamar Jackson and Josh Allen in a second. I think he's going to be significantly better than both of those two quarterbacks. But the top three quarterbacks in last year's draft, one of whom is Josh Rosen, on the team that is going to be picking Kyler Murray. I don't really even think, you know, there's a lot of people who will say that Josh Rosen had an awful year. That's indicative of the quality of player that he is, that he's going to be. Players who have that bad of a year typically do not become high-level, long-term franchise quarterbacks. He was not put in an optimal situation to succeed. He had, one, an offensive coordinator switch during the season. Two, the worst offensive line in the league in front of him. And three, take away David Johnson and Larry Fitzgerald, two very good weapons. There was very little else there. I like Christian Kirk a lot, but he's a nice number three wide receiver. He was the team's second best receiving option opposite Larry Fitzgerald. Rosen was never given the ability to show his true level of skill and ability because he was not in a stable situation and was not in an optimal situation to allow him to succeed. So now, what happens is... Now, the Cardinals have said publicly and through all the reporters that have talked about it, they have not considered the idea or notion of trading Josh Rosen. Josh Rosen is going to likely report in two days on Monday to off-season workouts as a Cardinal. It is very possible that they don't even trade Josh Rosen before the draft begins. Okay, okay, maybe not very possible. It is possible that they would go into the summer, into training camp with the two of them. Really, we look at it, Arizona's mandate here has to be that they're going to try to get a first-round pick for Josh Rosen. Now, the only way that I see that, well, 
I think that if they their mandate is to get a first round pick for Josh Rosen, I don't know. Besides New England at the very end of the first round, I don't know if that's going to be able to happen. You look at a team like the Giants at seventeen who have not who have been reported to not be that interested. Would Washington trade their first round pick? I don't know. But the thinking here we've seen in years past. Teddy Bridgewater went down in training camp and the Minnesota Vikings traded a first and a fourth for Sam Bradford. So, with how much NFL teams value the quarterback position, we saw last year backup quarterback Teddy Bridgewater, I believe, warranted a third-round draft pick when the Jets traded him to the Saints. One injury, one circumstance or situation happens, and there's a good team out there that needs a quick fix at quarterback, and Josh Rosen could be traded for a first-round pick. But... I think what's realistic for Rosen here as a trade package is a second-round pick and a mid-round pick on top of that. Trading for Rosen here is a rare opportunity for so many teams to get a true top-10 pick franchise quarterback talent and to get that quarterback and that prospect and that talent at a significantly lower draft capital than it usually takes to get that talent. You have to be a bad team who has a top 10 pick of your own, if not a top three or a top five pick of your own, to get a franchise quarterback level prospect. Or you have to trade up to get into that range to select that quarterback using significant draft capital, lessening your ability to make more picks and to hit on more picks, to have more depth and to have young, cheap, controllable players on your team moving forward. So now... This is a guy who could be had for a high to mid second round pick plus a fourth round pick. It would behoove any team who has a veteran quarterback who is above the age of 35 years old. It would make all the sense in the world to trade for Josh Rosen. If you're one of these teams who has a stopgap situation at their quarterback position for this coming year, regardless if you had traded a mid or late round pick, to get your stopgap fix for this year, like Denver with Flacco, like Washington with Case Keenum, Rosen gives you a long-term answer instead of um, postponing the inevitable and being in limbo with your quarterbacks. If you're a team like the New York Giants, who has no clear solution at the quarterback position and should have considered picking Josh Rosen second overall last year, you would be able, in their situation, to rectify that mistake and, in a vacuum, turning a second overall pick and a high second into Josh Rosen and Saquon Barkley. Now, there's significant other mistakes made by this front office, but in a vacuum, turning a high second and a second overall pick into Saquon Barkley and Josh Rosen would be excellent. It really would. So I look at teams like New England, teams like the Chargers, the Pittsburgh Steelers, the Redskins, the Broncos, the Giants. Those are the teams that I look at, and it would make all the sense in the world for them to trade for Josh Rosen. It would be another typical, shrewd, smart Bill Belichick move to get Josh Rosen here. Now, after trading Garoppolo, where really it was not feasible for them to keep Garoppolo behind Brady because it would have required them to franchise tag him, which would have required them to make significant uh, detractions and subtractions from their roster and other positions just to keep a backup quarterback for however many years until Brady retired. 
But since they traded Garoppolo for that high second round pick from San Francisco, they have been absent of the successor to Tom Brady. This provides them an example to get a true successor, a franchise quarterback level successor to Tom Brady without having to trade a ton of draft capital to get up, which is something that the New England Patriots never, ever do because they trade down smartly. So if they could take this 32nd overall pick in this draft and turn that into their successor to Tom Brady, you do it in a heartbeat. Josh Rosen would be the best quarterback in this draft class. And they could get him potentially for the 32nd pick. It would make all the sense in the world. The Chargers, the Steelers, take their second and a fourth would make all the sense in the world. If I were Washington, you know, obviously in a perfect world, I wouldn't have to trade my first round pick to get Josh Rosen. But if it came to it, I would seriously consider trading my first round pick for Josh Rosen because the franchise quarterback is the most important player for the long-term success of your team. And then the Giants, I mean, after making the awful Odell Beckham trade and having two first-round picks, that lessens what the ramifications of trading your high second-round pick would be. And even if they hadn't made that Odell Beckham trade, a high second-round pick into your franchise quarterback is a win. So the point here is that, one, Rosen becoming available creates a rare opportunity to get a true franchise guy, a top 10 pick caliber guy for low draft capital relative to what quarterbacks typically cost. Two, it's a very interesting debate in the sense of, is the difference in talent so great that it warrants passing on the big draft hall that would come from trading down from one? Three, the argument of putting the quarterback's desire or the coach's desired quarterback in charge of that scheme. I think to me, the most, to me, the most interesting part of this is the opportunity it opens up for other teams to trade for Josh Rosen. I mentioned uh, earlier the top 15 in the league quarterback aspect, and that'll transition here into this next point. Sort of the, I guess, the philosophy that I sort of have on the correct method for teams to go about selecting or acquiring or trading for their franchise quarterback. I think what happens is a lot of these teams, you know, earlier on in this draft process, uh, before Kyler Murray had really broken out and had his Heisman Trophy winning season this past year, everyone was going crazy about Dwayne Haskins and Justin Herbert who ended up staying. The franchise quarterback is the most important decision that a team can make. That's an undisputed fact. And unless you can see the quarterback that you're acquiring having the ability to eventually be one of the 15 best quarterbacks in the league and preferably one of the 10 best quarterbacks in the league, unless you can see that happening, whatever asset you're using, whatever player you're trading, whatever pick you're using, you are wasting it. Getting a quarterback just for the sake of getting a quarterback because you have a quarterback need and quarterback X happens to be the best quarterback available at whatever mid-round, mid-in-the-first-round, second-round, whatever spot or best free agent you have to overpay to get them is not smart. 
It's just not. You really, to get a guy who can be a true franchise quarterback, who can make a difference and be a long-term successful quarterback who can win and be an above-average quarterback and be one of the top 15, top 10 quarterbacks in the league, you have to use a premium asset. There's a reason that we rarely see an elite quarterback who is championing or carrying a high-level playoff team. We see It's very rare that we see a quarterback of that team not be a top 10 pick or a top 5 pick. Russell Wilson is someone that argument arguers against this. is They'll point out Russell Wilson as a third-round pick, but that's an anomaly. That doesn't happen consistently. It just doesn't. You can find useful starting caliber players at many positions in the mid-first, late-first, early-second, mid-second, late-second, and third round, even the fourth round sometimes. Corner, wide receiver, pass rushers, linebackers, a safety, a tight end. You can get starters and difference makers at these positions at any point in the draft. At the quarterback spot, you're not getting that true top 15, top 10 guy, unless you're using a premium asset. And when I say a premium asset, I mean a top 5 to top 10 draft pick. Because if you don't, and you have, say, pick 16, and you just take quarterback X because he's the best quarterback available, you're hoping to get lucky and for that quarterback to perform like a top 5 pick, or you're put in a position where you have to hope to get lucky where a quarterback prospect like Jimmy Garoppolo or Josh Rosen becomes available for a second-round pick. And that's not a sustainable way to build your franchise because you're banking on getting lucky. Just examples here. We look at um, look at the Browns when they picked Deshaun Kaiser in the second round a couple years ago. It's a waste of a draft pick. In the second round, you can get yourself a starting wide receiver, a starting corner, a starting safety, a starting linebacker, a starter as an edge rusher, starting an offensive lineman, a tight end. You could get a good running back in the second round. Many positions, you can get a difference-making talent in the second round. If a quarterback is available in the second round, the odds are he's not even going to be a starting-caliber NFL quarterback, let alone a franchise-level quarterback. We look at even teams who sort of buy into this little hype that's um, that builds around these mid-round quarterbacks as the draft nears. Guys like Ryan Mallett, Landry Jones, Ryan Nassib. At best, if you're picking a quarterback from three to five in the draft, in the third to fifth round in the draft, unless you get an anomaly like a Russell Wilson, a Dak Prescott, or in the anomaly of anomalies, Tom Brady in the sixth round, you're getting at best a backup quarterback. At best, if they're even a pro quarterback at all. And by doing so and wasting a pick on a quarterback there, you're wasting a pick that could have become a useful player at many other positions, maybe even a starter at many other positions. You need to have three to four good wide receivers on a championship team. You can get a number three or four wide receiver in a mid-round pick or a depth corner or a depth edge rusher. You can get talent and depth at needed positions in that range. You're not getting anything better than a backup quarterback in that range. Same with the Giants picking Kyle Lalletta last year, a wasted draft pick. 
I even adhere to this as far as a quarterback being picked in the middle of the first round or the end of the first round. Ryan Tannehill was a mid-round or the middle of the first round. I want to say he was in the teens when Miami picked him. And how did he end up? At best, at his peak, he was a mediocre quarterback and is now a backup quarterback level player. Andy Dalton has been the epitome of a mediocre quarterback who was around the 20th best quarterback in the NFL for years, and he was picked at the very, very back end of the first round. These teams go into the draft, and they have a need at quarterback and get blinded by that need at quarterback and say, no matter the quality of the quarterbacks in this class, no matter what quarterbacks are available at this spot, we're going to take the best quarterback available just because we need a quarterback. That's not going to get you long-term winning. That's not going to get you to contention or success. You need to have an above-average to elite quarterback on a rookie contract for multiple years or a top five to top ten quarterback on his big quarterback contract moving forward to be a successful NFL team. We've seen that in these last couple years. If you don't have either of those things, you're putting yourself at a disadvantage. The Jacksonville Jaguars with Nick Foles. Now, Nick Foles has been on this miracle run in these last two years with the Eagles. Is Nick Foles worth paying four years for $88 million with $51 million guaranteed? No, he's not. You're paying him as if he's one of the 15 best quarterbacks in the NFL. And outside of these last two years, and that one year um, uh, under Chip Kelly, he's never shown that. So the Jaguars are putting themselves at a disadvantage because they don't have the cheap quarterback who you can build up the rest of the roster around because the quarterback is so cheap for those four years or five years. Or no, the fifth-year option is very significant. So for those four years, or you don't have the established all-pro veteran who's making the big money. If you don't have those two things, you're not going to win. Or it's going to be very, very hard for you to win. So transitioning that philosophy on quarterback, using a premium asset to get a premium quarterback in the top 5 to 10 of the draft, and that quarterback has to have the ability to one day be a top 15 quarterback, preferably top 10 quarterback in the NFL, or otherwise you're wasting your asset or pick. So transitioning that, let's look at this year's NFL draft. I think this philosophy is so apparent with every quarterback besides Kyler Murray because Kyler Murray has the chance to be a top 15 quarterback in the NFL. When people were talking up Dwayne Haskins and Justin Herbert, I looked at it as it wasn't because of the prospects that Dwayne Haskins and Justin Herbert are. It's because of supply and demand. They were the best quarterbacks that happened to be available before Kyler Murray emerged as this incredible quarterback this past year. We look at it now, we have this mid-first round group of quarterbacks in Will Greer, in Drew Locke, in Daniel Jones, and you have these teams like Washington and like the Giants picking in the middle of the first round. Do we really, really see a way that Will Greer, Drew Locke, or Daniel Jones ever going to be a top 10 quarterback in the NFL? I would be stunned. Do we even think that Will Greer, Drew Locke, or Daniel Jones could be a top 15 quarterback in the NFL? That's more realistic, but even that, I don't see for any of those three. 
Dwayne Haskins, I don't even see it for. So, even though I think he's a little bit better than those guys, I don't even see him being a top 15 quarterback, let alone a top 10 quarterback. So, if you're the New York Giants, who have met multiple times with Daniel Jones at the 17th pick in the draft, if you stay there and pick Daniel Jones when you have created and had needs across the roster in your secondary, at receiver, now that they've created one, um, at edge rusher, at linebacker, this team has holes. And if you used a 17th overall pick on a guy who's never going to be a franchise-level quarterback, and you turned Odell Beckham into Jabril Peppers, who I like, and Daniel Jones... Even though I like Jabril Peppers, that's awful. That would be absolutely awful. If you're one of these teams in the middle of the first round and you pick a Will Greer or Drew Locke or a Daniel Jones, you're just wasting a draft pick that could be used to acquire a very, very good player at almost any other position. Not almost any other position. There was even the thought that Daniel Jones may not even make it to 17, forcing the Giants to trade up for him. Could you imagine wasting not only a first-round draft pick, but adding in other draft capital to move up just so you could select a quarterback who is very unlikely to ever be one of the 15 best quarterbacks in the NFL? I cannot. That I cannot picture. So, really, if you look at it as a whole... It's a very faulty philosophy to just be at whatever pick in the middle of the first round, second round, third round, whatever it is, and to just say, all right, we're going to pick quarterback X because he is the best quarterback available. That's not a winning philosophy. And if the New York Giants or whatever team in the middle of the first round were to pick one of those three quarterbacks, they'd be adhering to that faulty philosophy. That's enough about the draft and quarterbacks. Let's move it along here, and let's switch it up to the NBA. Uh, actually, no, real quick before the NBA, a quick uh, in-memorial here for the Alliance of American Football. Um, unfortunately, suspending football operations this past week. It's really unfortunate. I think that they had a lot of good things as far as their ideas for a style of play, um, as far as talented players as evidenced by many players being signed by NFL teams in the aftermath of the league ceasing operations, there were a lot of positives there. And it's unfortunate to see it be shut down not even after one season was completed. Um, obviously, there were some faults as far as business structure, the need to, you know, after one week or two weeks, no, it was after one week, to get a $250 million investment of which $70 million was put into this point and to have to give control of the entire league to that one investor after a week or two, there's faulty business and financial planning in there. So you can put the blame on Tom Dundon, the investor, for shutting down the league when it didn't need to be shut down, or you could put the blame on the league founder, Charlie Ebersol, for putting the league in a position where they needed a significant bailout to the point where they had to turn over control of the league to one individual who had the authority to make decisions as they wanted, regardless of anyone else's desires. Whatever it is, it's just sad. It's very sad. People lost jobs. 
people were stranded, and this league did not need to end when it did. And it's very, very unfortunate. Um, be interesting to see how the XFL does next year. I fully expect them to last two or three years. The funding is there, um, over $300 million worth from Vince McMahon, and uh, three-year stadium leases in place. So I think that there are avenues for them to be able to at least survive for two to three years. Um, it will not end after one year. I would be stunned, no matter what. Um, I'll give it two to three years at minimum that the XFL lasts. Could see it being more. So now we go to the NBA. And one thing I want to get into that I've not gotten into on the show before is the all-rookie teams. With the two all-rookie teams, with the season being in its last week and teams having very few games left, I think you can see a clear picture at this point of the guys you'd put on this team on these two teams. So the all-NBA rookie first team, in my mind, no doubters here, Trey Young and Luka Doncic, the top two rookies in the NBA this year. Um, I would put Marvin Bagley in there. I think Marvin Bagley has been great, uh, has exceeded my expectations and those of many others. Uh, Jaron Jackson Jr., even though he's been hurt for a pretty hefty period of time, was still a very, very productive rookie and showed flashes. Or not flashes, showed the ability to be an Al Horford-type player for years to come, which every team in the NBA could need. But he was very productive when he played this year, so I'll put him on the All-NBA Rookie First team. And in the fifth spot, I'll go DeAndre Ayton. Even though he was the first pick and is the worst of these five guys, and these guys being all the top five picks in his past draft, he still had, he's still having in an awful situation on a terrible team a very good offensive season. He has improved defensively. He's a good rebounder. He's a good player. I think people want to crap on him because he's not elite defensively. He may never be elite defensively. He's not as good as these other four guys, but he is still a very good prospect, still worthy of being a top-five draft pick, and is still an all-rookie first-team caliber player. So my all-rookie first-team, Trey, Doncic, Jaron Jackson Jr., Marvin Bagley, and DeAndre Ayton. Now where it gets really interesting is the second team um, for the all-rookie NBA second team. So before I list the players, I have a few honorable mentions. The first one, Wendell Carter Jr. I loved what I saw out of him this year. Now, I just don't think he played enough games. Now, on the flip side of that, I just put Jaron Jackson Jr. on the first team, and he has been out for a pretty decent amount of time. Jaron Jackson Jr. showed a lot. So Wendell Carter, for me, just did not play enough games, and the player that is on or in the center spot for the second team truly had a Really, really impressive season. So, Wendell Carter has to be left off there. And my other honorable mention is Kevin Herter. I was between two people, uh, Kevin Herter, another player for this team. Herter was just slightly edged out. Herter is going to be a very useful player for many years. A tall 6'7 wing, uh, a 2 or a 3, who can shoot the ball from 3 and is improving defensively in the mold of a poor man's Clay Thompson. And that's what he was drafted to beach by Travis Schlenk. I have really liked the development on the defensive side of the ball for Herter as the season has gone on. He is a very, very good three-point shooter. He's got great size. I think he's going to be a very useful player for years to come, and I was very impressed by what, by what I saw from him this year. 
So with all that being said, the five players that I put on this all-rookie second team. Start with the guards here. The first one is Colin Sexton. Now, Sexton has really, really, really improved as the season has gone along. Um, he had a poor start to the season. He was very inefficient. He wasn't productive at all shooting the ball from three. Uh, he was basically living in the mid-range. His own teammates uh, were publicly, anonymously saying things to reporters about how he can't play. Um, and now, in let, let's look at this little stat here. So, in his 13 games before April 2nd, 12 of those 13 games, he had 20 or more points. He was averaging 24 points a game, shooting 52% from the field, 47% from three, and 90% from the free throw line. And then... In the two games since April 2nd that Cleveland has played on April 4th and 5th, he had 19 on April 4th, and then he had 27 on April 5th against Golden State. So what Sexton has done is he has evolved from that inefficient, non-productive at all from three shooter and all-around scorer to now becoming a guy who can effectively score in all different ways. He can get to the rim, attacks the rim hard, He's shooting well from three, and he's shooting free throws at an elite rate. So, yes, his defense is a major concern. His playmaking ability and lack there, or not even ability, just his playmaking or lack thereof is a concern. Maybe, you know, is he truly a guy who can be a starting point guard on a championship team? Those are all legitimate concerns, but he is producing, you know, at this poor man's Westbrook-esque level, and I think it's definitely possible and sustainable for the long term for him. He's been amazing offensively as the season has gone along, and he's really, really improved. So I think Sexton definitely gets a spot on this all-rookie second team. The other guard is Shea Gilgis-Alexander. I have been a big fan of Gilgis-Alexander since the beginning of the season. Again, great size. He's very methodical. Doesn't necessarily wow you at first, athletically or explosively. Um, but he can really, really thrive in the mid-range. He can get to the rim. He's a great uh, playmaker. His size as a point guard allows him to be really versatile in guarding both guards defensively. Um, just by virtue of his size, he's a good defender. Outside of that, he actually is a good defender. Um, his game is going to continue to evolve, but it's a no-doubter that SGA is on this all-rookie second team also. And, you know, you look at this past draft, Trey Young, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Colin Sexton, all three of the top point guards um, in this last draft class, all of them have very, very promising futures. So my all-rookie second-team guards, SGA and Colin Sexton. Now we go to the other three spots. I mentioned center earlier in talking about honorable mention Wendell Carter. My center is Mitchell Robinson. Mitchell Robinson is a beast. I noticed it in Summer League when he was able to block threes on closeouts against guys. He blocks threes when he's guarding guys just one-on-one in front of them. He closes out and blocks threes. People don't do that. The guy, just his mere, he's so, he's got such a great wingspan. He can protect the rim at an elite level. He's a rebound. The ball feels as if it just magnetizes. He just has a magnet. And when he gets rebounds, the ball is just coming to him. Or when he is defending guys at the rim, the ball is just, it's a magnet to him blocking shots. The guy is an elite 
elite, elite, elite rim protector, is going to be a defensive player of the year, is going to be an all-NBA defender multiple, multiple times. The guy is one of the best shot blockers we've ever seen in a statistical sense. His ability to close out on guys shooting threes and block shots, to me, is just incredible. And his wingspan, his presence in the paint, his elite rim protection, you know, whether the Knicks get Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving or not, you know, flip a coin or whatever, right now I'd bet that they do, Mitchell Robinson's a useful player for that team for years and years to come. This is an elite defensive force who is one of the best statistical shot blockers we have ever seen. And he's only going to get better. And they got him in the second round at 36. Or not 30. It was either 34 or 36. Don't remember the exact number off my head. But Mitchell Robinson has to be the all-rookie second-team center. And then we have two more spots. I mentioned uh, the debate with Kevin Herter. The person I put on instead of him was Mikhail Bridges. Now, he has not gotten a lot of talk because he ended up out there on Phoenix but he has one of the best um, RPMs of any rookie at any position in the league this year. He is such a useful, productive player in his style of play in this current NBA climate. Plays great defense, shoots the ball well from the perimeter. He's a steady hand. He's reliable. He's just so productive, and he's going to continue to be for years to come. Um, again, it remains to be seen how Phoenix can build this roster into something that can win. But Bridges is a great piece that every team in the NBA could use. I was impressed by him. He's exactly what I thought and everyone else thought that he was going to be a productive, useful 3 and D player in the modern NBA. Slightly edges out Kevin Herter for that spot. And then the last spot on this all-rookie second team goes to Landry Shamit, um, Sixer, now Clipper, He's the perfect off-the-bench three-point shooter, an elite three-point shooter, or has the makings of being an elite three-point shooter. The guy is just incredibly productive shooting the ball from deep. He opens up and spaces the floor for whatever team he is on. He's a weapon for teams to bring up off the bench and to light it up from beyond the arc. Um, he's getting pretty good run with on the Clippers, or since the Clippers have gotten him, he was getting good run on the Sixers and has already shown to a pretty significant extent how useful of a weapon he's going to be and how he is going to have a place in the NBA for many, many years just because of how great of a three-point shooter he is. Has good size, you know, not the best defender, but he has size which can kind of compensate for it. But he's been a useful and key cog in two teams' rotations, two teams who the Sixers, one of the four best teams in the East, the Clippers right now are sixth, but are a playoff team in the West. So it's not as if he's playing on not good teams. He's a useful key player in the rotations of two playoff teams. Shooting 43% from three. Got to be on the all-rookie second team. So that would be my all-rookie second team right there. Uh, Colin Sexton, SGA, Landry Shamit, Mikhail Bridges, and Mitchell Robinson. So, updating again, just based off of the fact that the season is coming to near its end, uh, my current thoughts on the awards in the NBA as we get close to the end here. Um, I have flip-flopped at the MVP spot. I now have Giannis in 
the proverbial if I had a vote, he'd get my vote spot at number one. Again, it's so hard to decide between these two guys. Flip a coin. Uh, But I have Giannis in that first spot now. Harden second. Paul George, um, really with this Oklahoma City Thunder free fall, uh, Paul George has not been healthy. He's not been producing at the really MVP caliber play in production he was at earlier in the season. I was one of those advocates of it's a three-man race, not a two-man race. It's a two-man race now. Uh, With that being said, he was so good earlier in the year that Paul George has to be number three in my MVP ranking at this point. Uh, Kevin Durant, fourth. Steph Curry, fifth. Embiid, sixth. And Jokic, seventh. Most improved player has not changed for me. I still have Pascal Siakam in that one spot. Darren Fox, Paul George, D'Angelo Russell, Buddy Heald, and Miles Turner following him. Uh, Coach of the year, we have had a new guy in my mind, added to the mix, making it a group of six. Um, I still have Mike Boonholzer being the coach of the year. Doc Rivers, I have second. I mean, it's incredible how Doc Rivers has taken this Clippers team who has really been, they shuffled their roster midseason, taking away, you know, their second best scorer because Gallo has been so good this year, taking Tobias Harris away from them. Um, having a team with a lot of two B free agents, where at times it's hard to get buy-in from those guys, and taking this team to being right now the sixth seed and a locked clinched playoff team in the really competitive Western Conference, that's really commendable. It's very impressive. So I have Doc Rivers second in the Coach of the Year rankings, uh, Mike Malone third, Nate McMillan fourth, um, just because of how you know last year they did not win a single game when Victor Oladipo was not playing. And this year, they were successful when Oladipo was out in November. And as I've mentioned before, since he has gone out with a major injury in January. Uh, Kenny Atkinson would come fifth. And then Dave Yaker, sixth. Rookie of the year, still the same. Luca Trey, Bagley, Jaron Jackson Jr. in that order, one to four. Uh, I would have Joel Embiid as a defensive player of the year. I think he edges out Paul George at this point. I'd have Rudy Gobert, third. Uh, and then sixth man of the year, at this point, it's between two teammates with the Clippers. It's between Lou Williams and Montrez Harrell. Derrick Rose is a great story and had a great year, but with his injuries, Harrell and Williams are both in front of him. I give it to Lou Williams, but you cannot go wrong with Montrez. Montrez, I would probably have sixth or seventh in that most improved um, player or excuse me, seventh or eighth in the most improved player category. You know, maybe Levine and Montrez would be in those seven and eight spots in one order or two. But Montrez would be my second. Montrez Harrell would be my second in the sixth man of the year award category. And my number one would be um, the sixth man extraordinaire, Lou Williams. And then the last thing that I'll have to close out this show are my all-NBA teams. Um, they have changed a little bit. My first team is not, though, and really there's no other possible option for this first team, in my opinion. Curry, Harden, Paul George, Giannis, Joel Embiid. You'll have some people who will argue over Embiid or Jokic as the first team center, but Curry, Harden, George, and Giannis, that's not arguable. That's locked in. But I would have Embiid as the center there. Uh, Second team... Lillard, Irving, Durant, LeBron, and Jokic. And the third team, Carl Towns at center, Blake Griffin, 
and Kawhi as the forwards, Kemba Walker, and you just have to put Russell Westbrook on there. The last time I did this, I had Bradley Beal and Kemba Walker as the third-team guards, but you just can't not have Russell Westbrook on there. I think people are too hard on Russell Westbrook. Um, sure, his attitude is whatever, or or sure that people don't like his attitude sometimes, or they get frustrated when he takes a ton of shots, or he hasn't been shooting the ball at all well from three this year. But the guy impacts the game so significantly. Every time he's on the court, he's averaging a triple-double again. We're at the point now where two years ago, him winning the triple-double got him MVP. And now, since it's just so atypical, or not atypical, so typical of what he does every single year, no one even bats an eye at the fact that he's averaging a triple-double. That's insane. That's crazy. And now it's just normal. It's what we come to expect from Russell Westbrook. That 2020 and 20 triple-double that he just put up last week. Incredibly impressive. People don't have 20, 20, and 20 triple-doubles. They just don't. And for all the things you could want to criticize him about, he takes too many shots. He's not shooting well from three at all. This or that. His attitude is this or whatever. Russell Westbrook is an elite NBA player. And I think that even though there also are some flaws, sure, the guy just impacts the game so significantly. And when he does so positively, so incredibly positively, this is an all-NBA caliber player. No question. Um, so really the debate with this third team now for me is that I'll be looking for in this last couple games of the season. Um, and really still, I had Kemba Walker in there now, but you could flip a coin on Kemba Walker and Bradley Beal. Um, I think Walker has kind of slowed down a bit since the peak of his production earlier in the season. Beal is great. You know, Washington has just been a mess, finally getting rid of Ernie Grunfeld after so many years this past week. Um, it's incredible how long he held on to that job. But... It's a legitimate argument between Kemba Walker and Bradley Beal. Um, and it would have an impact on both of them as far as the Supermax is concerned. You know, Washington, man, you know, having suffered from the John Wall um, Supermax ramifications, having to deal with potentially another Supermax, even though Bradley Beal is an elite, productive NBA player. Kemba Walker, as his free agency comes along, how much do you pay? How do you properly value a player of Kemba Walker's size and skill set and age? You know, if you're the Charlotte Hornets, who have really nothing besides Kemba Walker, you know, Miles Bridges is nice. They have a lot of overpaid contracts. You know, MKG's making too much. Cody Zeller's making too much. Marvin Williams is making too much. Frank Kaminsky became this integral piece of their rotation, which is insane. You know, they could value Kemba Walker at the point where you pay him whatever, but is a Supermax something you really want to pay Kemba Walker for the next five years? If they're, if you really want to give a five-year contract to Kemba Walker, I don't know. But this all-NBA dilemma here between Westbrook, or not Westbrook, between Walker and Beal, that's a Supermax-level decision. That's going to have major ramifications for Charlotte, for Washington, 
for whatever team would want to be able to sign Kemba Walker. You know, if Charlotte has that Supermax in their back pocket and Walker could leverage it into, hey, give me the Supermax or I'm walking, and maybe teams think that there's a chance that Walker is going to leave as a free agent and the Supermax takes that away, that impacts other teams as far as their pre-agent pursuit of Kemba Walker. So it's a major, major decision between Kemba Walker and Bradley Beal. The rest of that third team, uh, Kawhi, he just missed too many games to be higher than the third team. Um, Blake Griffin has been incredible this year, and Carl Anthony Towns has been out of his mind in the last month or last two months. The guy is a beast. He deserves to make All NBA this year and to get his contract bumped up by thirty-two million dollars over the course of the next five years. He really, really deserves that. Um, as a whole, outside of the um, the Bradley Beal, Kemba Walker dilemma, I don't really see any other guys who you could really make that strong, strong argument for to be on an All-NBA team. You know, Drew Holiday, before he got hurt, had a great year. Clay Thompson's had a good year. But th- those guys cannot get in front of any of these other guards. They just can't. Anthony Davis is absolutely not to be considered after the year that he's had. Uh, with the minute restriction and the trade uh, request and all that, that whole mess. So those would be my three all-NBA teams at this point. Really the only thing I could see changing over this next couple of days with these three all-NBA teams is whether I include Kemba Walker or Bradley Beal in my mind if I had a vote. Um, As far as awards, the only thing I could see flipping there is Giannis and Harden. I think I'm probably leaning Giannis unless Harden does something crazy over this end of the season. Um, and the all-rookie teams, in my mind, I think are set. I can't see any way that I would change who I'd have on those two teams, especially the first team is locked in. The second team, I think I pretty much is set, pretty much half set as well. Um, incredible that as we sit here right now at 5.50 p.m. on April 6th on after the final whistle, Again, I'm your host, Brad Clear. The Orlando Magic, if the season were to end this very second, the Orlando Magic would be the sixth seed in the Eastern Conference. Now, I don't put that as a testament to the Orlando Magic. I put that as a testament to how bad the Eastern Conference is. I don't think there's any benefit to the Orlando Magic in a basketball sense of making the playoffs. All they're going to be do is slaughtered by whichever top four teams, which one of the top four teams, or excuse me, not top four teams, top three teams that they face, the Sixers, Toronto, and Milwaukee, they're just going to get slaughtered by whichever one they play. I mean, hey, they'll get that playoff ticket revenue. Good for them. Uh, but outside of that, I mean, they're just going to end up with a mid-round draft pick, which won't be a difference maker, and their season will have been... You know, you look at the young guys, Bamba was hurt pretty much. Um, Bamba has been hurt for a significant period of time when he was playing. Uh, He wasn't really productive because they were still trying to win, and Vucevic is having this all-star season, and now Vucevic may be re-signed long-term, which if that happens, they won't get the maximum effect of picking Bamba sixth overall this past year. Um... And then you have this team, you know, Aaron Gordon, Jonathan Isaac, and Mo Bamba just does not work together. They set up Aaron Gordon's contract to descend in salary year to year to year, which is smart. I still would not have signed him last year. Um, 
Jonathan Isaac does not. I, I'm a big fan of Jonathan Isaac. Can guard any position one to five. But the consistent outside shot and offensive game is still not there yet. This team, by making the playoffs, is going to keep themselves just completely stuck in the middle. I thought the trade for Markel Fultz was not smart. You know, trading a first-round pick and a very high second-round pick this year, uh, that first-round pick being OKC's top 20 protected next year, and the second-round pick being Cleveland's this year, you know, those are two useful picks. And they turned into a guy who we don't even know if he'll ever be anything. Um, So, I mean, good for them in a morale sense of getting to make the playoffs. Again, nothing can nothing is set with still multiple games to go, but right now they are in that sixth spot. Um, I'm sure the Sixers love seeing them in that sixth spot. Uh, would be a nice, quick, and easy first round of the playoffs for them. Um, looking at that East, man, the last... I mean, this is nothing new, but the second round of the Eastern playoffs is going to be a bloodbath. Um, if you had to ask me right now, I still would say that Toronto and Milwaukee will be the Eastern Conference Finals, and I kind of would lean toward Toronto being the team that makes the finals out of the East. They're just so deep and have so many ways to attack you. And, you know, Milwaukee, the best regular season team in the NBA this year, I look at Toronto and I see a team that's super deep, so much versatility, not saying that Milwaukee doesn't have these things, but I just see Toronto as a team that's perfectly built to make the finals. I look in the Western Conference, I still say that there's no threat to the Golden State Warriors making the finals. However, I think the team that will make the conference finals to play them is Houston. Um, Unfortunately, I do agree with the whole teams really should not be afraid of the Denver Nuggets. Look, they're a great team, second seed in the West, a fantastic regular season, but you combine... You know, I think that lack of playoff experience thing is overblown. I really think talent supersedes that, but I think you do have to consider it. And secondly, I think Nikola Jokic is going to be targeted in the playoffs and is going to become a liability defensively. You know, teams are going to target him, especially against Houston. Uh, he's going to really, really struggle defensively. I mean, he's he's absolutely great offensively, can score in any way, and is an elite passer. But he's going to be really, really struggling on the defensive side of the ball in the playoffs. And that's something that other teams can target and other teams can expose. I think Portland, you know, you really want to be, if you're the Clippers or the Utah Jazz, you really want to get that five seed spot because the Portland Trailblazers now without Nurkic, McCollum is hurt. Or without Nurkic for the rest of the season, McCollum is hurt now, will come back. That's the team you want to play in the first round. Now, the Clippers lost yesterday, so they are still in play to fall as low as eighth. Um, ultimately, I don't think they will. I think that will end up being San Antonio or Oklahoma City. Yeah, I mean, if you're Golden State, you really don't want Oklahoma City to fall to eighth. They'd still beat them. But you don't want to have to play a team as good as Oklahoma City right off the bat in the first round of the playoffs against Russell Westbrook and Paul George. You don't want to have to do that right away. The Spurs are no easy task either, but I take playing the Spurs in the first round over Oklahoma City in a second. No question about it. 
So that'll about wrap up today's episode of After the Final Whistle here on WSOE 89.3, or if you are listening on podcast.com or Apple Podcasts. I am your host, Brad Clear. Check back in here every Saturday from 5 p.m. until either 6 p.m. or 7 p.m. Shout out to you, the listener. Shout out to WSOE. Shout out to podcast.com. Shout out to Apple Podcasts. Shout out to Johnny Gargano and the Velveteen Dream. Again, I am Brad Clear. And as always, goodbye and good night.